Hey y'all, welcome to Gadfly, the podcast about third parties, French candidates, generally weird electoral history of America. I'm Dusty. And I'm Uda. Ooh, like Zoom, the application I've been on oh since my forever. God. We, we even heard the slap happy part of the conversation, apparently. No, Dusty, in a way, you're kind of the Huey Long of this podcast Oh right yeah, we now. gotta rush this podcast through, man. We have so many episodes, we gotta just like slam through the Senate. Um, yeah, so let's just dive on in, man. So you know, at the end of the last episode where, where yes. Huey becomes a senator, ruins Paul Sears' life for the rest of time, and instead... Yeah the saddest man in the world to be governor so he can bully him and just do the job he was okay what the hell is Huey doing as a senator during this yes yes I did um the answer is working on gaining national relevance oh and where better to do that than at the democratic national convention Mm. in 1932 the dnc would be held in chicago and the race to get the presidential nomination was at a fever pitch and this is because the republicans had no chance in hell of winning president herbert hoover had the misfortune of leading the nation when the stock market crashed and america was pushed into the great depression by 1932 poverty was rampant and the national unemployment rate hit 23.6 percent that's a yikes Two million people had lost their homes, resulting in makeshift shanty towns that would become known as Hoovervilles. So Hoover was fucked. And much like Southern politics, all it would really take this time around was for the Democrat to win the convention to essentially become the de facto president. You love to see it. Three candidates would become favorites prior to the convention. There was former governor of New York and 1928 nominee Al Smith, who had the backing of the Tammany Hall New York City machine. Hey. There was Speaker of the House John Nance Garner of Texas, who had the support of the Southern conservative Democrats. And then there's the frontrunner, the new governor of New York, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Huey would lead the Louisiana delegation in choosing to support FDR. The pair had never met, but had like kind of a, a professional courtesy for each other after FDR got Huey's entire delegation sat in 1928 and for supporting Al Smith. So there's at least a decent, uh, a decent like between the two, despite not meeting. Sure. Backs have been scratched. No ill will. He did, prior to the convention, believe that FDR was completely unelectable. But after realizing that he was going to be the only progressive frontrunner, he locked in the votes for the delegation. He also made the point that Roosevelt was a sure way to bring along the Republican progressives to their side and ensure a landslide victory. But the big thing, though, is that by endorsing Roosevelt, he would be able to gain himself more national prominence by shocking the press that a Southern Democrat was supporting a New York Democrat. And just for like a little cherry on top, of publicity. While Huey is in Chicago, the Farmer Labor Party offered Huey the endorsement to run as their presidential nominee, uh, which he turned down. This is like, I kind of have to back this other guy. Yeah, it, w- it was an extremely good decision. Uh, you can hear all about their uh, their ill-fated 1932 race in our episode about Jacob Coxie, because oh, yeah. they selected Jacob Coxie to be their presidential nominee, and he got like 3,000 votes. Oh. Huey probably would have gotten more, but it's just, it's, you know, I think he realized that this is, you know, this party's big in Wisconsin, and a bit in Minnesota. That's probably it. Um, I'm good. <laughs> right. And I am from Louisiana, and that yeah. is 
two and a half states by my count. Yes. Or at least from Chicago. Yes. Or no. What? Whatever. Well, I'm just thinking like not all of Minnesota, just like a smidge of Minnesota. Oh, I, I thought you were saying like away from Louisiana. Like, <laughs> cool. My brain is working. <laughs> we're um, doing great. But yeah, but these two things of like being offered the presidency spot by a minor party and shocking the world by supporting Frank Roosevelt, it was getting Huey just a ton of press before the convention even started. It did cause one member of the press to ask Huey that if Frank Roosevelt offered him the vice presidential slot, would he take it? And um, I'm sure the reporter thought this was just like a, you know, a softball question. Huey looked at him with absolute fury and said, quote, Huey Long ain't vice to anybody or anything. And then walked away. <laughs> <laughs> get out of my sight you shit ass <laughs> you shit ass i'll tell you exactly what i told my brother julius when he made me a junior partner <laughs> at the convention huey had been brought to the roosevelt camp uh to plan out their strategy for the weekend but rather than sitting back and letting fdr and his new yorker pals talk he made himself the center of attention most notably, he encouraged them to force the convention to change the rules of how the winner was decided. At the time, the winner needed two-thirds of the delegation to win. Instead of, and what Huey wanted is like, we should make that one half. The reason, though, is that the conservative Southern Democrats hated the idea, and the fear was that if they forced the rule change, then they have no chance of really causing a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Causing a race while at, at the convention. They, co they couldn't cause a challenge while they were there. They were never going to get two thirds, but they could at least have enough people to influence how the selection was going to be made. But if it's a half, no one's going to make that effort to like. Right. If it's a half, Roosevelt's going to win on the first ballot. So at that moment, while Huey's making a big deal about this, the FDR camp seemed to really kind of regret bringing him into the room. <laughs> but then came a moment that should have been pure boredom that Huey made exhilarating. Once again, the conservatives of Louisiana decided, we're going to send our own batch of delegates again and see how this works. So in 1928, they, they did the same thing, uh, and Huey and his group was able to trounce them thanks to help from FDR. But rather than having this decision of which delegation you're going to seat from Louisiana, whether it's Long or the conservatives, typically that'd be held behind closed doors. This time around, it was held publicly over national radio. So Huey goes to take the stage and is greeted by a chorus of boos from the Al Smith and John Garner groups. And when he got to the mic, he begged everyone to stop applauding, correctly assuming that the sound quality was so bad that people listening on the radio couldn't tell if it was boos or cheers. And then instead of being a boisterous pain in the ass, Huey argued the case for his delegation in cold legal terms. He, he brought a, a stack of legal books with him and repeatedly went back to the table where they were housed and opened up to pages that he had saved to read directly from the law to state why his delegation was legally allowed to be there. Oof. He struck down the competing delegation's claims, and most importantly, he won over the entire audience. Once again, they expected a radical, but instead they got a calm, pragmatic, legal mind. The long delegation was selected, and suddenly, Huey was the hottest commodity in the party. The Roosevelt campaign would task him with winning over the Southern delegations, who were mostly there for House Speaker Garner. And Huey was able to get some on their side, but it was never really enough to, to settle a win for Roosevelt. At one point, Huey would threaten to kick Joe Robinson's ass to change his mind from voting Garner to uh, Roosevelt, and clearly that didn't work. But he was able to stall things long enough to the fourth ballot when Garner was offered the vice presidential spot under Roosevelt, and he immediately dropped out and had everyone go to FDR's camp so that they could both win. And of course, in true Huey style, he took complete credit for FDR winning the convention. 
Yep. As for the next step following the convention, I don't think Huey even knew what it was actually going to be. I think in his mind, he assumed it was going to be helping out the Roosevelt campaign in some way, but another topic would end up getting in the way. And once again, we have to go back a little in time. In November of 1931, Senator Thaddeus Carraway of Arkansas suddenly died. As is tradition, his seat was filled via the appointment of his widow, Hattie. The idea is, if a widow is given a congressional position, that makes them eligible for a pension, meaning that they will not go financially destitute after oh, they leave the office. Oh, okay. The understanding, though, is that you are a woman in the American legislature in the 1930s. Clearly, you will not run for re-election. We are giving yeah. this to you as a gift, as an honor, as a, as a kindness, and then right. get the fuck out. Sit quietly, collect your pension. Correct. So when Huey got to the Senate, Hattie had been there for a few months, and the pair were actually seated right next to each other. Hmm. Huey considered her to be very mousy and quiet, didn't draw attention to herself, and Hattie never really once rose to debate or to speak on any bills at any point in time. Huey would ignore her for the most part, until he started to look at her voting record. She had been one of the few regular voters that he had when he presented his radical proposals. This shy, middle-aged woman was a secret radical. Yes, she was. By mid-July of 1932, four prominent politicians had entered the Democratic primary to claim Hattie's seat, which is why people were equally confused and amused when Hattie bucked tradition and chose to run to keep the seat. Yeah. Even Huey told her this is probably a bad idea, especially since the primary was two weeks away from when she entered the race. But she replied by saying that she wanted to try anyway, and if she was going to lose, she wanted to go down swinging. And it was in that moment that Huey decided, I need to help Patty Carraway win. Aww. Six days before the primary, Huey began a statewide speaking tour of Arkansas to stump for Hattie. But she made him make one promise. He could not speak ill of Joe Robinson while he spoke. And Huey agreed. <laughs> Even with Huey's help, the Democratic establishment believed that Hattie would do nothing more than embarrass herself. One predicted she'd finish dead last out of six candidates with 3,000 votes tops. Some would predict that Huey was doing this due to a feeling of uh, chivalry, of uh, helping a damsel in distress. But the real motive, of course, was more in line with his constant motives. For one, he needed all the allies in the Senate he could get. Mm -hmm. More importantly, he knew that if he could pull this off and get Hattie elected, he would gain the prestige of not just being a local power, but someone who could influence elections on a national level, even ones that were considered lost causes. Mm. And third, and most importantly, it would scare the shit out of Joe Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> so his goal was to speak in five to six towns a day. Huey brought his caravan of sound trucks along with him. But this time, they, um, since speed was a little more important, they enacted a new style. What would happen is one set of trucks would go to the entry city, while a second set of trucks would go forward to where they were going to speak second. That second set of trucks would then set up a meeting area. They would play music, get people in the town excited, kind of start a little dance party, have a little carnival thing, so that when Huey he got into town, the crowd was already waiting for him. And then the, the set of trucks that was at the first town would go on to the third town, wash, rinse, repeat. So you have both a speaker and a party throughout the entire the entire thing. Oof. It's like a hype um, machine on wheels. He also brought a couple extra trucks full of posters, handbills, and copies of a speech that Huey gave about Hattie in the Senate, as well as his Doom of America's Dream speech that went off so well. Reporters followed Huey as he drove into Arkansas, and to their surprise, the roadside was packed with locals cheering Huey on. When Huey made his first stop in the town of Magnolia, he delivered the speech he would use the whole week and set up the theme of not so much Hattie's campaign, but the theme that Huey would make his national calling card. Quote, 
we have more food in this country than we could eat up in two years if we never plowed another furrow or fattened another shoat. And yet people are hungry and starving. We have more cotton and wool and leather than we could wear out in two years if we ever raised another bowl of cotton, sheared another sheep, or tanned another hide. And yet people are ragged and naked. We have more houses than ever before in this country's history. And more of them are unoccupied than ever before. And yet people are homeless. Oh, this is a little too close to modern day but continue really fucking good (laughs) but who's to blame for all of this according to huey it was about the 570 millionaires up on wall street or you know the one percent as he put it of americans who hoard all of the wealth well the the remaining i don't know 99 percent have to wallow in poverty he's er bernie Uh uh-huh he's pro the 99 percent started with huey goddamn long But of course, we can't just blame the millionaires. Not when both Republicans and Democrats are doing fuck all to fix these problems. And especially when these parties are at the bidding of the rich and had no interest in the radical measures needed to truly help people. And then Huey buttoned up his speech by referring to the Bible as the source of his ideas. He would essentially say that these senators who disagreed with him were all men with the audacity to think that they were smarter than God. (laughs) And what could people do to help? Well, clearly, you help by voting for Hattie Caraway. Boom. Tying it back. The first audience in Magnolia, Arkansas, loved every second. They laughed, cheered, and screamed for wealth redistribution. It was such a success that a local politician immediately contacted the state Democratic Party to warn them what was happening. As he put it, a tornado had passed through town, and the party better prepare. (laughs) Heidi would join the tour as well. And at first, you know, she was not a good public speaker. She was, you know, nervous and quiet, not a really good compliment to Huey. But as she practiced more and more and took notes from Huey's way of speaking, by the end of the campaign, she was getting just as much applause as Huey was. By the time the pair entered the largest city in their tour, Little Rock, they were able to pull in a crowd of upwards of 35,000 people. The tour would finish up on August 6th, or at least the Arkansas part would. So Huey planned to go back to Louisiana after that day. Election day was right after that. But a group of people from Mississippi had come across the river and asked Huey if he could come over and deliver his speech because a lot of people heard it was really good and a lot of people want to hear it. Oh, damn! So Huey grabbed his sound trucks, went across the river, gave like four or five speeches in Mississippi, and by the end of the day was so exhausted, the thought of driving back in a car on roads that were going to shake him like crazy just was too much. So one of his bodyguards drove him to Memphis, put him on a train to New Orleans, and just, you know... (laughs) Let him sleep it off. By the time he got to New Orleans, he got to find out how the election had gone. And Hattie Carraway won with 44% of the votes. Oh my gosh! It was double of what the second place candidate received. (gasps) Um, She would have to face a Republican in November, but of course we know that doesn't fucking matter. And in one week, Hattie had gone from a lost cause candidate to the first woman in American history to be elected to a full term in the Senate. Oh shit. Um, She would end up winning re-election the second time around, but lost her third run in 1940. 42, I believe. So she uh, she had a pretty solid career. Good for her. That's awesome. Following helping Caraway get elected and ensuring an even stronger slate of long candidates in Louisiana, Huey was ready to make another big leap. He called up Jim Farley in New York City, who was running FDR's campaign, and Huey wanted to campaign directly for Franklin and wanted to meet to discuss tactics on how he could help. Farley and the campaign wanted Huey's help, but still kind of viewed him as too wild to control and still very capable of harming the campaign. 
So Barley would present Huey with a, a list of states that they felt safe that Huey could go to. States that were notably either certain wins or guaranteed losses. And Huey saw through this immediately and threatened to campaign against FDR and just campaign for Hoover. But after a glowing letter from Roosevelt begging Long for his help, Huey agreed. Huey even got invited to Roosevelt's home in Hyde Park to meet for the first time and discuss issues, and it sounds like it was a mess. <laughs> so Huey shows up to Hyde Park, and he shows up in, like, an orange suit with a pink tie and a straw hat. Oh, no. Um, to the Roosevelt estate, which is just, you know, oh, full no. of... Just oh my deeply God. wasp. Yeah, Just... like that that New England accent they teach actors in the 50s to use. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like that's, yeah, that's the origin story for that accent, basically. So, uh, so Huey is sitting right next to FDR and they're like discussing tactics and things. When uh, Roosevelt's mother turns to someone next to her and says, who was that awful man sitting next to my son? And said it in that old person tone where it's much louder than they probably assumed it was. And yeah. Huey definitely heard it but he played it off like he didn't my god i mean genuinely i do wonder how much of um huey's sojourns back to louisiana was like partly because like he just couldn't stop micromanaging the state and and partly the fact that just like just sheer culture differences yeah. it's like i need to get back to my home yeah i i don't doubt homesickness was part of it so Huey agrees to the speaking tour that Farley sets out, and he is sent to North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Kansas. Huey had his entire sound truck convoy brought up from Louisiana and ran a similar tour as he did in Arkansas. The people in those states came out in droves to see Huey and adored his speeches. He was doing so well that uh, the Democratic Party members in those states begged Farley to send Huey to any states where FDR was on the bubble. And Farley would ignore them, but mm. openly regretted his decision after the election, mostly noting that he should have sent Huey to Pennsylvania to win over the coal miner vote. Mm. The thing, though, is it wouldn't have really mattered. Roosevelt won in one of the biggest landslides in American history, winning the Electoral College 472 to 59. <laughs> name them name the 59 oh my god pennsylvania was one um. oh jeez. <laughs> so after becoming a campaign trail star huey expected that a reward of some sort would be waiting for him from the new president and unlike most he didn't want a job in the administration or a committee seat in the senate what he wanted most was to get a guarantee from roosevelt himself that he would support wealth redistribution and push huey's laws through the senate at first, it kind of seemed like that there was a, a chance that this would happen. Franklin invited Huey to his winter home in Georgia, and the two discussed policy. But as they talked, Huey grew more and more disenchanted. Uh, he noted that every time that he brought up his opinions and said what he wanted, Roosevelt would always answer with the same answer of, fine, fine, fine. Uh, he started asking around about who else had been invited to Georgia. Uh, Joe Robinson had been invited to Georgia, and he got word that after everything that Joe Robinson recommended, Roosevelt said, fine, fine, fine. <sighs> So mostly he was conducting a straw poll of what people would support if he brought it up, but also to like maybe farm out a couple of ideas. But FDR knew what he wanted to do before he went. And yeah, and I can I can just imagine like FDR with with his own level of hubris, right? But then <laughs> on top of it, finally getting into the White House, and now he's got Huey Long and Joe Fucking Kennedy. Yep. riding his ass for favors yep. every goddamn day. Fucking polio. <laughs> Just hanging yeah, out. And, and polio. Yep. Can a man breathe? 
I mean, not with polio. (laughs) (laughs) On December 6th, day two of a lame duck session in the Senate. So a lame duck session, for those of you who don't know, um, is a period of time between the November election and when everyone gets inaugurated. So you'll have the House and the Senate, uh, where a not insignificant number of people had just lost their jobs in November. Uh, So they're they're bitter and they're sad, but they still have to vote. Yep. And sometimes that can regard to presidents who have just lost the election or can't run for re-election. So they're their power to push through laws is gone. Um, So stay two of a lame duck session. And Huey decides he's going to make a bit of an ultimatum. He stressed he wasn't trying to threaten Roosevelt before he even became president. But he implored that he was sent to the Senate for the sole purpose to redistribute wealth. He believed that FDR was planning to do that. And that the only way to ensure it could happen was to change the leadership in the House and the Senate. However, if Roosevelt was unwilling to support that, then all the progressive senators needed to rally behind Senator George Norris of Nebraska and push their bills through. The next month, two months before Roosevelt was inaugurated, Huey made good on this promise. No change in the Senate leadership was coming, and a fairly middle-of-the-road banking regulation bill came forward with the support of Robinson and enough New England Republicans that it was going to pass. However, when the bill was introduced on January 5th, Huey rose to oppose it and shocked the floor when he was joined by the entire progressive caucus behind him. Oh, damn. The bill would go up for official debate five days later, and Huey let loose with a four and a half hour filibuster, where he quoted from two different Bibles that he brought with him. As he told the press, you can never have too many Bibles. Where did those even come from? (laughs) (laughs) He's part Bible. Um, Were those in your pockets? um, I think my favorite part is um, he does quote a very good part of the Bible, James chapter five, verses one through three during his filibuster. Which goes, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are mothy. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. That's good Bible in. That, yeah, that slaps. It's really fucking good. It really sucks when you like hear so many bad parts of the Bible. I know I shit on numbers all the time or all the weird parts of Leviticus, but that is good writing. Yeah. Say that instead of I Corinthians. Like you freaking nailed it, James. Good job. So yeah. So essentially telling rich people that their flesh will burn and your riches will crumble in the middle of the Senate is a is a move. (laughs) It's a vibe. Huey would continue his filibuster for days. At the time, Senate business did have a closing time. So if you could just filibuster till like five o'clock, you were good. So humane. Let's bring that back. Yeah. Like nowadays you have to like talk for 24 hours at a time. You have to wear adult diapers. (sighs) You just can't leave the lectern. But yeah, you could like go home, rest your voice and then come back and just keep filibustering. Uh, To fill the air, Huey read the banking resolution as slowly as he could and occasionally paused to ask the audience if he was going too quickly. (laughs) So petty. When his voice started to waver, Senator Elmer Thomas of Oklahoma would come to his aid. Huey promised that if he lost the ability to speak, then Thomas would take his place, and the two would hold the Senate at a standstill until a bill to decentralize wealth was brought forward. On day seven of the filibuster, uh, Hoover did something that should have really distracted Huey. He vetoed a bill that would have granted the Philippines their complete independence. Uh, America took the Philippines after the Spanish-American War. We held them as a protectorate. Not in very 
kind ways. Nope. And yeah, so Huey was very much in favor of Philippine independence. And it was expected that Huey would end up changing his mind and switch to discussing that bill, but he completely ignored it and kept on filibustering the bank regulation bill. On day nine, Joe Robinson moved for cloture, which would have ended the debate and forced everyone into a vote. And it failed by one vote. <laughs> Sensing the end was near, though, Huey used the moment to force a simple amendment to the bill banning banks from opening branches in other states, unless states permitted such an action. It was a very small concession, but it made Huey have to be the victor in the whole thing. The Senate would eventually pass the bill on the 25th, with Huey still opposing it just without filibuster. However, FDR noted the protest against it and directed contacts within the House to kill the bill before it even got to reach the president. Whoa, what? Yep, the Washington press would come away from this very intrigued by Huey. In the past, as Robinson expressed, leadership could just haze people into losing their independent streaks. With enough shame and high society malice, even the most bullheaded of men could be emotionally brought to heel. But those tactics don't work with Huey. He does oh. not care. The meaner they got, the more amused he seemed to be. The man is troll logic. <laughs> and no one knows how to fight a troll in the 30s. No, no one's been brought up on like Tumblr jokes. <laughs> The fact that these men of propriety were getting mad was a sign to Huey that things were working, and it amused him to know that they were telling on themselves without even knowing it. <laughs> Following this, Huey would take a leave from the Senate for a month to deal with a hearing back at home. In November, Huey had backed Congressman John Overton to defeat Edwin Broussard for his Senate seat. The conservatives in the state claimed there had clearly been election fraud, and Huey had to have been a ringleader in the whole affair. After a month, though, the trial became less about finding election fraud and more about trying to find any angle possible to branch the trial off into a hearing about Huey himself. Things descended so far that they began investigating the person in charge of finances for the Overton campaign. This one in particular is kind of funny because the guy who was running it, a dude named Seymour Weiss, um, when they asked him if he had any expenditure reports for the campaign, he said no, and they asked him why, and he's like, like, it was too hard, so I didn't do it. <laughs> it ain't fraud if it's just ineptitude. <laughs> yeah, if it's, fuck, what's, what's the word? If it's, um, uh, the link, I don't know, whatever, yeah. <laughs> so they, they, they questioned him on this and ended up not really finding anything weird with campaign finances other than the fact he didn't keep track of them. So they started to begin diving into Seymour's personal finances with the hopes of finding some mysterious bribery money from Huey. And Long got so annoyed by this that he left the room and went to the office of the U.S. attorney in Baton Rouge. Huey presented him with a recent Supreme Court case that had decided that witnesses were not compelled to answer questions that were not directly associated with the case that was being tried. Huey simply asked him, this is the law, isn't it? And the U.S. attorney said, and I'm paraphrasing, Huey, you're a lawyer. Of course that's law. You know that's the law. So Huey went right back to the, the proceeding, essentially kicked open the door to get attention, and demanded that this line of questioning be stopped because a U.S. attorney agreed with him that this line of questioning was illegal. <laughs> Um, the U.S. attorney yes. was brought in and they're like, why are you interfering with this? Why are you sticking your nose in business that is not yours? And the U.S. attorney essentially said, I thought we were just talking. You're never just talking with Huey <laughs> loophole long. <laughs> And so, yeah, but it was the law, so they had to stop that line of questioning. The trial would come to an end by the end of March when the prosecutor, who had been hired by the conservatives to run the hearing, died. Which, of course, caused a couple of conspiracy theories that Huey had the man killed, which ignored two key facts. One, the prosecutor was very old. And two, the conservatives are far too bitter to think properly about this. <laughs> but watch out, motherfuckers, because shit 
is about to get real. It is March 1933 and FDR got inaugurated. And just in time for pretty much every bank in the country to face the worst crisis this country has ever seen. I am not exaggerating on this, Una. 100% of the banks in America were on the verge of bankruptcy. That's a yikes. So what was essentially happening is people are scared about their money and banks don't keep all your money in the bank. It goes to like other places, goes to investments to make more money. And if suddenly everyone decides I want my money, the bank doesn't have it. And when the bank doesn't have the money, people freak out, which means other people start going to other banks to get their money. And you have a domino effect yeah. of every bank having no money. But explain it to me like it's crypto. Uh, okay. It's um, <laughs> you have 50 slurp juices and you got to put them towards an ape. Wait, no, that's NFTs. Fuck. All right. Um, so, so FDR has to fix this and he ends up being very decisive about it in that he, he, passes a bill that forces every bank in America to remain closed until the Senate can meet. And so the Senate gets together to try to figure this out. And Roosevelt introduces a bill that would allow the banks backed by the U.S. Treasury to open. So these are mostly going to be your the 10% of the largest banks in America are able to open up and to, to give people money. Just kind of keep the amount low, but to also guarantee that money will be there if people go. But Huey made a point that by doing this, you're hanging out to dry the state and local banks who are going to look bad with this decision. It's going to make it seem like they're even more insolvent than they might be. Mm. So he argued for an amendment to include those banks under Treasury protection. But the urgency to pass the bill led to people shouting him down and just immediately passed what Roosevelt had brought. The thing that was after a few days, other senators had thought on Huey's point and what he said kind of made a lot of sense. And they, maybe they're acting a little rash due to the emergency of every bank dying. Hey, wait, we also have local banks. <laughs> Uh, what do you mean the rural people are mad at me? I don't like this. Oh no, the other people who vote for me? <laughs> so Huey got even more of an oomph when it was leaked that Huey's amendment that he had initially wanted in the bill that was presented to the Senate had originally been in the first draft of the bill, but Roosevelt had it removed. <laughs> Rosie. By the end of the week, Joe Robinson would add an amendment to the bill that was, in essence, Huey's amendment because he shamed Roosevelt the whole time saying that's what we needed. You knew it was a good idea. And so, yeah, so they add in this new amendment that's essentially Huey's bill. He doesn't get the name credit and it only happens after Huey gets a call directly from the White House and gets to approve what this new amendment says. Um, the bill passes. Huey wins, even if his name isn't on the bill. And now that Huey had direct proof that he could influence the president and bully him into doing what he wants, he would introduce his most ambitious bill yet, which he simply called the Long Plan. And it would be the ultimate plan to finally redistribute wealth. The bill included a personal cap on wealth at $100 million, so we're bringing that back. But we have more details on how this is going to be done. So it's going to be done by a capital levy tax. So if someone has over $1 million in their fortune, then they would be required to pay 1% of it directly to the government. This rate rose by each million. And once you got to $100 million, you had to give the government all the cash you had at maximum until you had $100 million. So if you have a $600 million fortune, $500 million of that goes directly to the government and you get to keep 100. Oof. 
Yeah. Limit annual income to $1 million, which we talked about before. That was something he also tried to get through. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once again, he was going to do this by raising income tax rates for the highest bracket that would charge 100% income tax on any income that totaled over $1 million and cap individual inheritance at $5 million, which once again, raise inheritance tax rates so that everything over $500 million goes straight to the government. And then Huey did some weird shit. He bought time on NBC and used it to promote his bills to the nation. Yes, Huey. Give it to the people. He would be the very first politician who wasn't a president to do this. The unwritten rule is that buying TV time is something only presidents or people running for president do. And by doing this, he was openly stating that he viewed himself as more as a senior partner to the president and not just some random loudmouth from Louisiana. Speaking of which, Huey enacted the same tone that he used at the DNC in Chicago during this television address. Spoke calmly, cited multiple sources, encouraged patience in getting such a radical plan passed, and made clear that the point of this message was to get Roosevelt's help to pass the plan that, according to Huey, Roosevelt promised he supported wholeheartedly. (laughs) I love it when he puts him on blast. It's like, fine, fine, fine isn't him saying yes. It's him just being like, I hear you and thanks. Well, then you should have said no. Right. That was your fault. So this claim that Roosevelt fully supported Huey fell apart within a month. By April, the economy and depression was getting worse, and Huey was growing more openly rebellious towards Roosevelt. When the Agricultural Adjustment Act, a bill designed to pay farmers to limit production, made it to the Senate, Huey led a charge to block it, demanding that the only real way to fix things for farmers was to purposely cause inflation so the prices of their goods would go up. Uh, Huey was part of a group called the Inflationists that believed that inflation was one of the key ways to fix the Great Depression. Hmm. Do we know if that has any economic merit or any more economic merit than whatever one else was throwing out at the time? I truly don't know. Um, Yeah, I'm just curious. Particularly, Huey thought that the government should issue a batch of silver currency along with paper currency and use that as a way to inflate prices. The Agricultural Adjustment Act was held up for 12 days until Roosevelt buckled and added an amendment that would inflate currency whenever he felt necessary. And Huey now had proof that he could bully FDR even further than he ever dreamed. Fresh off this win, Huey introduced his long plan to the Senate on May 12th, and he did it as an amendment to a revenue bill. He presented his argument in a style that at the time was brand new, but is now horribly common. Huey showed up with charts and visual aids. He invented (laughs) going to Kinko's before work. Yes! Using these aids, Huey noted that, you know, 1% of the nation held all the wealth while the remaining 99% existed in a realm of poverty and that the middle class really didn't exist anymore. The problem, though, is that Huey's bills were so simple that they didn't include how or where to spend the extra tax money, which left some progressives very anxious to vote for it. The bills would lose the same day by a vote of 54 to 18. The thing, though, is Huey didn't expect to win, but he also didn't expect to lose that badly. Oh, no. And even worse, the president didn't even come to his side to support the plan. The president didn't even come to his birthday party. <laughs> oh, He sent a card and listed <laughs> the front just said, hey, champ. <laughs> By May, a revised version of the bank regulation bill that Huey filibustered was going to be back in the Senate. And this version had added Huey's amendment for state and local banks. But being Huey, he only promised to support it if one extra amendment is added. And that is, he wanted a government insurance policy of all the money deposited in every bank. And once again, this was actually an amendment that had been in the first draft of the new bill. But once again, FDR cut it at the last second. (sighs) 
Um, Huey, being the petty man he is, he announced this finding to the Senate that once again, uh, more than likely Roosevelt's Secretary of the Treasury, who had worked for J.P. Morgan, had convinced him to take this out of the bill. And thanks to Huey pushing back on this, it was added back in. The bill would pass, and this new amendment is something we more commonly know today as FDIC. Yeah, I was just yeah. going to say. Yeah, Huey's ah. the reason your money can never disappear. Yeah, Huey's the reason we don't become Argentina every couple <laughs> years. Yes. I, I do wish we would have had that silver currency. It would have been ridiculous, and libertarians <laughs> would be losing their mind over it. By late June, the relationship between Huey and Roosevelt had reached its lowest point. FDR had pressed through the most important bill of the Depression, the National Recovery Act, half of which Huey loved and half of which Huey hated. He felt the bill was set to give the government too much power and accused Roosevelt of passing a bill that had all the worst aspects of socialism with none of the benefits. Huey also tried to sneak in an amendment to pay veterans World War I a bonus, but when Roosevelt announced that he would veto the whole bill if he did that, any progressive support Huey had left his side and the bill passed. Uh, it is then that Roosevelt Jim have against veterans. It's, I mean, it was a rough thing too because it was like they had been promised a bonus that would be paid, I believe, in 1943. But it's the middle of the Depression and they kind of need it now, so that was pretty much the argument. Yeah. It was after this that Jim Farley, who was now the Postmaster General, came to Huey to tell him that Franklin wanted to see him. The plan on paper was for the two to have a, a mild discussion of their differences, but in reality, Roosevelt wanted to have a come to Jesus meeting with Huey and to get him into line. The two met the next morning, and despite the tense topics, both kept a very kind tone. One of Roosevelt's real skills was to really never let his anger or emotion show. He responded calmly to most things, almost as if he was too kind and ignorant to know that people were being mean to him. Oh, um, one, of, one of my favorite parts of um, It Can't Happen Here is there's a moment where the Huey Long character offers uh, an ambassadorship to Russia to Franklin Roosevelt after winning the election, and Roosevelt responds with like the most polite like no thank you ever and everyone's like does he know that was supposed to be insulting like <laughs> but even though a lot of people were kind of put off by this it was the only tactic that someone could use with Huey by not giving into his traps Roosevelt kept the conversation in control the whole time and according to Farley the main topic was a list of patronage positions in Louisiana so president gets to name a lot of federal jobs across the country Louisiana had a handful that he could name and Huey already made a list for the president being like all right here are all my dudes give them jobs right and Roosevelt's like, I, I want to hire the best people for the job. I, you know, I don't need your list. I'll, I'll figure it out. And so Huey ends up leaving somewhat frustrated, not because he didn't get what he wanted, but because he couldn't get Roosevelt to commit to anything. Um, and as rare a creature as Huey Long was, Franklin Roosevelt was truly his kryptonite. As Huey would say, he often got frustrated that he could never get a firm answer from the president. <laughs> Everything truly fell apart once Franklin released his list of everyone who got appointed to jobs in Louisiana. And every single one of them were anti-long people. No! Even worse, the federal government decided that the current state of government, Louisiana, couldn't be trusted with federal funds, so an anti-long person was given the job to hand out federal cash. <laughs> So it's not going into Alice's brassiere. No, no. Alice, Alice can get a smaller bra. She can <laughs> she can rest. Um, and this, worst of all, publicly humiliated Huey. <sighs> the anti-long people got a breath of fresh air that the president could overrule Huey and that maybe, just maybe, they could win control back of the state if they got on Roosevelt's good side. Now, Roosevelt was very tight-lit about this break, but many suggested that Franklin was actually just very angry at the despotic way that Huey was controlling Louisiana and really wanted to check on his power. And the only way he knew how to do that was to put his enemies in 
some roles with a semblance of power over him. A personal friend of Roosevelt's would mention that a day after the convention in Chicago, that while discussing Huey, many people in the room were laughing and just joking about the guy. Except for Roosevelt. Franklin made the point that it was all well and easy to laugh at Huey, but he personally believed he was one of the two most dangerous people in America. He believed if there was ever a civil war or revolution, that it would be led from the left by Huey Long or from the right by General Douglas MacArthur. Either way, FDR had essentially declared war on Huey and was more than fine to let that break happen. <sighs> going into 1934, one would assume that Huey would be going to war against Franklin Roosevelt. To the casual eye, though, it seemed more that he chose instead to battle his public image. To kick off the year, Huey quit drinking, he quit smoking, and he developed an extensive exercise plan to lose weight. He recommitted to spending more time with Rose, who is his wife, and even took <laughs> her on a real honeymoon. Oh my god. Yeah, he told the press he was probably going to take her as far away as he could, and by that he meant just across the state line into Arkansas. Oh. But hey, it's a honeymoon, so. <laughs> yeah, in the 30s, fine. But really, this was all just a different tact for revenge. The only real attack Huey could take to end Roosevelt would be to finish step four of his ultimate plan. Huey had to run for president in 1936, and to do so, he had to start acting presidential. On February 23rd, 1934, Huey would buy time on national radio to announce that he was forming a new organization. It wasn't a political party, but rather a group made for people who believed, as he did, that wealth redistribution was the only way to pull the country out of the Depression. He dubbed this new group the Share Our Wealth Society. He implored people to join, to set up local chapters, and to write him directly if they had any questions on how to proceed. Also, there would be no dues to join, and members even got a free copy of Huey's autobiography, Every Man a King, for free. This was because, when he published the book in 1933, it did not sell well. So he had copies. Oh, stacks upon, he sold 20,000 copies, it was panned by the critics. So yeah, he had stacks upon stacks. He's gonna redistribute this book. <laughs> Membership also got you into Huey's circular mailing list, and you were given a small red, white, and blue button with the group's motto, Every Man a King. You know what this is giving, like, because I really feel like Huey Long gives such, like, Bernie vibes, and then, of mm -hmm. course, like, he sets off essentially, like, proto-meme atmospheres, and now it feels like Huey has started a sub-stack, and now <laughs> suddenly I'm getting an email, no! and in the email, it's asking me to just subscribe for a monthly fee to get more access to this Substack. Huey Long Internet? Yeah, Huey Long's a hipster interneter. <laughs> the only firm goal of the society would be to push for the key policies espoused by the organization. And these policies included the Long Plan of personal wealth of $50 million, maximum income of $1 million, maximum inheritance of $5 million. But along with this, raising taxes for the purpose of a basic household grant of $5,000, or as Huey put it, quote, enough for a home, an automobile, a radio, and the ordinary conveniences. And $5,000 would total about $111,000 in today's month. Uh, yes. Also raised from these taxes, everyone would get a, um, what's the word for it? You'd, you'd get two to $3,000 every year, no matter what. It, you know, something universal and basic you know, to supplant your income. Um, a universal basic income? What? Yeah. <laughs> He's calling for a universal basic income. And the money in today's money would be between forty-four dollars to $66,000 a year. Holy. Oh, my God. We could do our dumb art. We could finally just live mm -hmm. on our dumb art. Yep. Think yep. of all the good art that would be out there being made by people who are currently way too poor to even consider it. 
But wait, there's more. Ah! Free higher education, including college and vocational training. A mandated 30-hour, four-day work week. <sighs> minimum four weeks paid vacation every year. A $30 a month pension paid to anyone over the age of 65, which would be $667 today. And this predated Social Security. Mm. A $10 billion land reclamation project to end the Dust Bowl. Immediate pay for all World War I bonuses to be done early. Free medical services for everyone, and federal purchasing of all agricultural surpluses that are then stored in perpetuity and then used as necessary. How does this sound to you? I mean, I could cry. I yeah. yeah, of course I want it. This sounds great. This sounds amazing. I mean, the question does come up. How do you pay for this every single year? But it's also, you know, if you're literally taking all the money from, say, an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos, it's a lot of like Elon Musk paid eight times the amount that it would have cost to cure world hunger to buy Twitter. Yeah, this could have been done. Yeah. Yeah. Assuming it right. It, like. If anything, like the thing that makes me sad is the fact that back in the 30s, you probably could put a kind of tax on wealth that makes sense. Like I think mm -hmm. Elon Musk ponied up like Tesla stock and its value. Yeah. So it, so much of it is just like smoke in terms of True. actual like in your palm hard cash. Yeah. That said, oh my God, Jeff Bezos definitely has the money and cold hard cash. I know because I keep going on Amazon for dumb <laughs> shit with my cold hard physical cash. Look, man, I got to buy the Long Johns and socks. It's not like I'm going to go to a store to do that. Just look, I just am looking for a $3 <laughs> shitty erotic novel <laughs> yes. put on my Kindle that no one needs to know I'm reading. I want to read Bigfoot Erotica by a former congressman, and I don't yes. think there's anything wrong with that. No, <laughs> yeah, they're going to take my money. Fine. <laughs> so interest in founding Share Our Wealth chapters exploded. People began writing in for more info, which Huey originally replied to personally. But as the amount of letters grew, he shifted to sending out a de facto brochure. <laughs> in 1935, Huey's office was receiving 40,000 letters a week inquiring about the group. By that point, the Postal Service had to double the amount of trucks that they were sending to Congress uh, from one to two. And that second truck was just for Huey's mail. Within a year, the Share Our Wealth Society boasted 7.5 million members and had 27,000 chapters across the country. And Huey would have to delegate leadership of the group and selected a longtime friend and former clergyman by the name of Gerald L.K. Smith. Now, Una, do you remember the name Gerald L.K. Smith? Oh, no. It's, it's been a while. It's um, been a while. We did a whole episode on him about him being um, a Nazi who then founded ah. a, a third party called the Union Party and then founded a Christian nationalist party in the 50s right. um, and then founded a, a Christland in Arkansas that was extremely anti-Semitic. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so Huey knew this guy who, by the time that he was asked to lead the Share Our Wealth Society, had been kicked out of the church for being too political. But at the time, you know, Gerald was a follower of Long, he hated Standard Oil, and was a secret fascist. Uh, when he became leader of the society, he had been in contact with William Dudley Pelly, who was the founder of America's Nazi movement, and had made multiple attempts to reach out to Adolf Hitler. 
wild. Gerald would make his love of Nazism more publicly known when he said that he hoped the Scherer Welt Society could replicate the same successes that Hitler had in Germany. You know, it's weird that this doesn't get brought up in our history classes. Yeah. <laughs> the burgeoning Nazi parties that were in America. Yeah, it's uh, we got real close. It is something we should really talk about. It is nice to portray America as like the perfect paragon and savior of World War II. And yeah, I mean, the silver shirts of the Nazi party in America didn't do great. They didn't do numbers, as the kids would say. (laughs) But it's good to know that they were there. Meanwhile, Huey was still very much in the Senate. But I'm going to skip that period from here on out, because literally every bill, resolution, or motion that he filed for his entire career ended in defeat. The Senate would not become a place that Huey would pass laws, but for him, it became more of an open mic where tourists from around the country would flock to the gallery for a chance to watch the kingfish speak. That being said, we do have to talk about Huey's tenuous grasp on Louisiana, because in this year it started slipping. The tense alliance he'd made with the old regulars fell apart, And that led to the old regulars taking control of New Orleans once again. And this pushed Huey into a panic. Uh, When the election was scheduled in September of 1934, the one that he um, promised to stay out of, he went a bit overboard. On July 30th, 50 National Guardsmen were led by General Raymond Fleming to the Register of Voters Office in New Orleans, broke the lock off the building, and just took over the place. No! Police and the mayor of New Orleans rushed to the building just in time to see the National Guardsmen setting up machine guns. They would hear damn New Orleans. They would hear that okay Allen had declared a limited martial law, you know, diet martial law in the city to guarantee that there would be an honest registration of voters for the upcoming election. The problem, though, is that the proclamation for martial law was signed by Allen, but was issued from Huey Long's suite in the Roosevelt Hotel. In response, the mayor of New Orleans deputized an extra 400 people into the police force, which brought their total to about 1,300, brought in a large shipment of machine guns, tear gas, and arsenic bombs. I tried looking up arsenic bombs, I got no answers, and I'm on a list. And so the mayor ends up deploying 1,300 cops all over the city, as well as a pretty huge battalion directly across from the Registrar Voters Office, so that you have 50 National Guardsmen and a bunch of cops just staring at each other with guns pointed at each other. This is also just so crazy because it's like, all of this, and it's still like... I guess what I'm saying is like, I I think of like that level of like state troopers coming down to protect, you know, voter registrations, like, oh, meeting that black and Hispanic communities could actually vote. Oh, no, no, it's just interpolitic pettiness. Whoops. So in response, white people get to experience what it's like for the rest of, you know, otherwise legal voters. Anyway. So uh, in response to the mayor of New Orleans boosting the police and getting a bunch of weird ass weaponry, OK, Allen sends another 600 National Guardsmen to the edge of the city. (laughs) And then everyone just waits. And after about a day or two, both the cops and the National Guardsmen realize no one wants to do anything. Like, they're both standing there, tense, but slowly realizing that no one wants to shoot, and that if they could just stand there and wait, this will ease out at some point. Like, have we thought about turning this into a second line and just... (laughs) 
getting out of here. So over the two weeks where voters were getting registered, weirdly enough, things actually went pretty calmly. <laughs> like people went in, they got registered, nothing weird seemed to happen. And yeah, and then everyone just left. But so now that he has the Registrar of Voters office taken over by the National Guard, Huey moves on to the next step of his plan. He ends up getting O.K. Allen to call for a special session of the legislature to last for four days. And Huey would appear with a set of laws clearly designed to give the governor powers unimaginable before that day. This included laws that would allow the governor to call out the state militia literally whenever he wanted. Uh, it would ban courts from limiting the governor's use of the militia, allowed election officials to deputize an unlimited number of people to keep the peace during voting and registration. It offered unlimited power to pardon anyone for anything and allowed the attorney general to overrule any local district attorney without question from the courts. Wow. Calm down. That's a lot of militia. So the bills were introduced, sent to committee that day, returned immediately uh, to the House for Witness testimony, which only Huey delivered, and then were enacted the next morning. Uh, they were rushed to the Senate where the process was repeated, and thanks to the long supermajority, the bills passed easily within four days. Huey had installed a state-run dictatorship over New Orleans. On the week of Election Day, Huey had Allen send the entirety of the National Guard to New Orleans, which totaled 2,000 soldiers. My God. And I know you're going to be shocked when I say this. Uh, Huey's slate of chosen candidates won by a landslide. You don't say! That is shocking. So this began a period in which the veil of Huey dropped. Mm. If he couldn't rule Louisiana clandestinely, then he's going to do it as a dictator. <laughs> On November 12th, another special session would be called, and Huey introduced four 44 new bills, all of which carried the theme of the state expanding its power over local government. The most bald-faced of the bills was one that created an organization called the Civil Service Commission. Members of the commission would be the governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, and four other state officials who could remove nearly any police or fire chief if they found them to be incompetent for any reason. The municipality then had to produce a list of replacements to the commission, and if the commission didn't see any names they approved on that list, then they'd request a second. If they didn't see any good names on that one, then the commission just named whoever they wanted for the job, and that's that. Then we gave up the pretense and put in the person we were expecting to put in. Yorp! All 44 of the draconian bills would pass in five days. Oh my god. Three months later, Huey calls another special session, and this time he has 35 bills. These included laws no longer allowing sheriffs to name their own deputies, uh, required police and fire chiefs to get governor approval for all required goods and services, banned New Orleans from collecting certain taxes, and granted the state sole power to hire and fire teachers and school administrators from public schools. What? Huey, what does any of this have to do with being president of the entire United States? Doesn't matter. Passed in five days. <laughs> <laughs> it was clear that Huey had evolved into his final form. And weirdly enough, only one political party in America was willing to say what it was. The communists. They would state that Huey was clearly becoming a fascist. Or as they would say, quote, the man most likely to become the Hitler or Mussolini of America. They're the people you want on your side distributing the wealth. In January of 1935, FDR would make his final real attempt to shut down Huey's aspirations. And he got the Treasury Department to look into his finances. Essentially, he sent the IRS after Huey. Uh, it's always the IRS. Um, well, uh, Franklin's kid, Elliot, would brag later on that his dad invented the idea of using the IRS to go after your enemies. <laughs> So it really wasn't that bad of a plan because as the, the Treasury Department started looking into low-level long followers, they started finding fraud. 
And they'd go to the person above them. And they'd find fraud. They go to the person above them. They'd find even more tax fraud. So the theory was clearly the higher up we go, the more fraud we're going to find. We are following the money because we are the IRS. The the person who ended up leading to Huey was uh, Seymour Weiss, who uh, chose to not uh, file any sort of uh, campaign finance reports for the senatorial election of John Overton. And that he failed to report about $150,000 in income. And they're just like, if it's that much, Huey's clearly going to do more. <laughs> Um, So they indicted Huey, fully confident they'd find everything they needed to ruin his name. But Huey was not scared. At a press conference, he would accuse Roosevelt of using this to keep him from running for president. To which he said there's only one way to keep him from becoming president, and that was to enact every platform pushed by the Share Our Wealth Society. But since Congress clearly had no interest in doing that, he has no choice but to run for president, and nothing will stop him. I I do. It's like, oh, I'll go away. You just have to do one simple thing. (laughs) The Washington press, though, had gotten to the point of believing there is literally nothing that anyone can do to stop Huey from becoming president. No one in the Senate could best him. His enemies were now in fear of him. And the populace loved him so much that even if he was caught committing tax fraud, they would be convinced it was all just a setup by Roosevelt. Mm. He had spent the past year cementing his rule in Louisiana, but he had also been able to get the public to view him as a mythical hero. Even powerful men like Catholic priest demagogue Father Charles Coughlin and the father of Social Security Francis Townsend had come to Huey's side. And just as Huey predicted, the Treasury Department didn't find a single instance of tax fraud or graft. It wasn't a question anymore if Huey would run for president. It was now a question of whether or not he would win. But a lingering question for Huey, though, was whether or not he would survive to see that day. In East Baton Rouge Parish, sentiment towards Huey was about as low as it could get. Uh, do you remember that five cent oil tax that he tried to push back in 1929 to, to fuck with Standard Oil that got him yes. impeached? Yes. Um, well, in the batch of bills that he was pushing through, that was one. He did it again? He forced it through. And Standard Oil responded by firing about 5,000 people. Ooh. And Huey, when presented with the idea of Standard Oil leaving Baton Rouge, <laughs> he said, well, if they leave the city, they can always relocate to hell. Which that's a that's, really good burn. That's really good. <laughs> but a number of people who had lost their jobs at Standard Oil or were in fear that they might lose their jobs started a bit of a club called the Square Deal Association. And by club, I mean paramilitary organization. Oh. Oh, no. The group would reach their most violent after the parish government uh, was overrun by long supporters via the new batch of laws. So the East Baton Rouge Parish was one of the few counties that was very anti-long. And parishes are run by what's called a police jury, which is just a synonym for county councils. And it so, does have the word police in it. It's very weird. But um, so Huey couldn't remove people from that office. So he produced a new law that would double the size of the police jury and then gave the governor the right to name the new 13 teen members and so now you have a long super majority (laughs) so shortly after that people are already in a bad mood but it got worse when they found out that one of the most beloved members of the square deal association had been arrested by state police and rumors were swirling that they were torturing him into giving up names of members so 300 members grabbed their guns marched to the paris courthouse and took it over (laughs) only one person was there to stop them so it didn't take long and then no one really knew what to do (laughs) Some people brought up the idea of marching to the state capitol, but they really couldn't settle on that. And after five hours, people were just kind of starting to get bored. And it's around this time they get news that the dude who was arrested has actually been released. And because of that, they leave because mission accomplished. Congrats. So Huey, not to let something like this slide, had Governor Allen declare martial law in Baton Rouge and then declared the parish the first military district. This meant that people were banned from carrying guns, that newspapers were banned from printing anything about the 
state government and that crowds of what? two or more people were forbidden from gathering. What? It's uh, a little bit beyond martial law. You are now living in a police state. <laughs> Yeah. Um, 800 National Guardsmen flooded the city, and Huey made a public claim that all the troops were needed due to a valid claim that Standard Oil had paid someone to kill him. Because it turns out the one guy the state police arrested was actually a spy for Huey, and he'd given up all the names of the seven men who planned to kill him. But whoops-a-doodle, they all left the city, so I guess we can't find them, but welcome to military rule, y'all. <sighs> So ultimately, the Square Deal Association wouldn't last that much longer. Uh, one night, they would get this emergency call from someone who said, get your guns, meet us at the Baton Rouge airport. We need you there for the instructions will follow. And it was like so important sounding and so rushed that a bunch of people did. And when they got to the airport, there were like 100 people there who were just like, why are we here? No one knew why. And then the National Guard appeared and surrounded them. <laughs> No! Um, they all it's ran crap. off in various different directions. They got tear gassed. And mm. Baton Rouge very quickly realized the Square Deal Association was just a bunch of yokels doing their best. And not like oh a, not a group you could rely on. An international syndicate? Right. Right, right. But from this, Huey's paranoia just grew. He never went anywhere without his bodyguards and took seriously every claim of assassination that came across his desk. But you can't let a little thing like revenge-fueled murder distract you. Huey's on the verge of an election year, and goddammit, he's going to fulfill step four of his power plan. And by late summer of 1935, he had a plan in place of how he was going to do it. He would attend the 1936 DNC as the head of Louisiana delegation after declaring himself a candidate for president. He would accept the support of the Southern Democrats, but knew he would lose to Roosevelt in the end. But he would spend the convention speaking and advertising himself over the radio to the whole country. Step three, after losing the convention, he would form a third party in which he would name himself the presidential nominee. Step four, he's going to lose, but he's going to make a good showing of it. A person within FDR predicted he'd get about 10% of the vote, which would be enough to get FDR to lose and get a Republican to win. Step five, with a Republican in charge, the economy's gonna get worse. And by 1940, people are going to be so desperate for help that when Huey Long runs again, he's gonna win and he's gonna be able to run the country however the fuck he wants. It's foolproof. It's, so how does it go down? It's definitely his longest plan. True. So in preparation for this, Huey purchased a couple extra sound trucks for a planned national campaign and even had an airplane built just for himself. Um, Huey was terrified of planes, so him doing this was huge. But to make it even more fun, the plane would have a speaker on the bottom so that when he flew over towns, they could announce like, Huey Long's coming to speak in your town. Um, I guess they flew s slow enough for that to make sense back right, in the day. Right? It's not a good I, idea. Yeah. Get a banner. <laughs> um, but this would have made Huey the very first political candidate to campaign via air travel. Uh, to prepare the country for the campaign, Huey published a second book called My First Days in the White House. In it, he listed the men he wanted for his cabinet. Uh, he would want William Bora to be a secretary of the state, but he also offered really nice jobs to past presidents. Herbert Hoover could be the secretary of commerce, and FDR would probably be really good as secretary of the Navy if he wanted it. <laughs> the book obviously called for enacting the Share Our Wealth Plan but added a bunch of other ideas, such as creating a central federal bank. He would want to make all railroads under absolute government control, 
and potentially nationalize them. And finally, he would make an entire government bureau dedicated to ensuring the Share Our Wealth plan achieved its funding and goals. And all that was left was for Huey to announce that he was running. At the latest, step four of his plan would be complete by the time he was 47 years old. And Huey would return for Louisiana during the summer to deliver the coup de grace to local governments. So as was tradition, Huey got Allen to call a five-day special session, and it began before most of the anti-long people could even get to town by train. Oh my god. 25 bills were introduced, but the general idea was that altogether they got rid of local government's ability to hire or fire anyone in a position that wasn't elected. Yep. Are you? Oh, oh you, you're a secretary in this small parish office? Fired. Governor doesn't like you fired. No. And just to fuck with New Orleans for having the audacity to go back to the old regulars, he introduced a law that banned them from collecting real estate and property taxes and transferred those taxes to go directly to the states. Other bills banned a batch of other taxes, which would result in the city losing $1.8 million or two thirds of its annual income. Yeah. The laws were designed to destroy the city to the point that no one lived there. Woof. So after these bills were passed in five days, the old regulars in New Orleans met with Huey to surrender. Huey agreed to restore tax rights to the city so long as the mayor resigned. And it took a bit of fighting. The mayor was adamant that he would do no such thing and essentially would go down with the ship. But eventually they were able to get the mayor forced out. And Huey promised that he would get a special session called in September and restore financial assistance to the city. True to his word, a special session was called and 42 bills were introduced. Most were dull, but there was one that would induce a fine in jail time for violating the 10th Amendment. Wait, what's Which, the 10th Amendment again? The 10th Amendment is the one that's all states' rights, uh, that like anything not listed in the Constitution is handled by the states. So the general idea is like, oh, there's an IRS agent here to, to look into Huey's funds. Oh, that's a violation of the 10th Amendment. Throw him in jail. Or like, oh, FDR is down here and he wants to make sure OSHA regulations are fine. Nope, throw him in jail. Oh boy. So a lot of people were convinced that this wasn't going to be overturned by the Supreme Court pretty quickly for being unconstitutional. But the whole goal was to just have the trial be after the 1936 election. So Huey really didn't care. And then there was a bill aimed directly at an enemy of Huey's, Judge Benjamin Pavey. Havy had been a judge in the 13th Judicial District for 28 years and had the luck of living in a parish that was avidly anti-Long. The district itself was one very big, highly populated anti-Long parish and one very, very small pro-Long parish. So no matter what, as long as this district was around, Benjamin Pavey was going to win. So Huey devised a plan to just split the district. The anti-Long parish would be placed in the 15th district, which was very heavy with Long supporters. And the tiny, barely populated pro-Long parish just became its own judicial district. It became the 13th. No. It was extremely blatant gerrymandering. But if it passed, then Benjamin Pavey would have no chance of winning re-election in 1937. The session was going just as quickly as the last. And as Huey walked about the capital, he kind of seemed to have not much to do. The old regulars who were there were beaten and defeated. No one was trying to fight anything. It was just it was just people going through the motions for the most part. Huey made his way through the capital, a ball of energy and nowhere really to put it. His guards surrounded him as he walked into the corridor opposite the governor's office. And it's at this point that behind a pillar, a man in a white suit walked up to Huey. He stopped a few feet from Long, pulled a gun, and fired. John Fournay tried to tackle the man, but the shooter was able to regain his footing and started to run. Huey ran towards the Capitol basement, and his bodyguards all drew their weapons. As the assassin tried to escape, they let loose 60 shots. Holy cow. The assassin dropped to the ground dead. Uh, more bodyguards walked up to the body and then shot it until they were out of bullets. <laughs> 
When the body was turned, it took a while for anyone to really know who the hell it was. But finally, someone identified the man as Dr. Carl Weiss. He was an ear, nose, and throat specialist, as well as Judge Benjamin Pavey's son-in-law. <sighs> as for Huey, he'd staggered into the basement and run into one of his guards. After telling the guard he'd been shot, he carried Long to the back parking lot and flagged down a car. They drove Huey to the hospital, and while waiting for care, a cop informed Huey that the assassin was Carl Weiss and Huey had never heard of him before and kept asking why he would want to shoot him. The motive actually isn't clear to this day, mainly because Carl was killed before anyone could ask him. Yeah, mostly because Carl had about 60 plus bullets in him. Yeah, and his family was pretty sure that he wasn't avenging his father-in-law. They even noted that that morning he was in really good spirits, but that also might have been because he's like, I'm gonna go kill Huey Long. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the most common theme that they have is he was really mad at Huey Long turning the state into a dictatorship and was genuinely worried what Huey Long would do if he became president. Yeah. Doctors would perform surgery on Huey for an hour and to their relief, didn't see anything that signaled any great danger. The problem, though, is that the doctor who did the surgery hadn't done a thorough inspection of the wound. Turns out the bullet had hit the renal duct of Huey's kidney and had been mm -hmm. suffering internal hemorrhaging the whole time while they were waiting for specialists to arrive from New Orleans to continue his care. By the time it was recognized, Huey was too weak for emergency surgery to be anything but fatal. The only thing they could do was just give him a series of blood transfusions, which would work for a little bit, and then he would go right back to not doing well. One day after being shot, he phased in and out of rational conversation, vivid hallucinations, and complete unconsciousness. Rose and the family made their way to the hospital and sat beside him. And at four in the morning, 30 hours after being shot, Huey would say, quote, God, don't let me die. I have so much more to do. And then he died at the age of 42. Oh my God, 42. So a large number of the laws that Huey had passed would eventually be struck down <laughs> due to them being highly unconstitutional and draconian. Yeah. yeah. And we've talked quite a bit about the legacy of Huey. Um, he's been featured in multiple amounts of uh, media and books. Uh, for quite a while, he was an analog to a Trump figure before Trump ran of a dangerous populist with a, a flair for fascism. <laughs> but I think if we're going to close out the legacy he left behind, we kind of have to talk about his family. So Rose Long, as his tradition, would be appointed to Huey's seat in the Senate until a special election was held, which she won. Oh, get out! This would be the first time in history that two women were members of the Senate at the exact same time. Hey! Um, I do love the image of her and Hattie Carraway sitting next to each other in the Senate. The ladies! The ladies! So Rose would not run for re-election and move to Colorado to be with her daughter, and she'd die in 1970. Earl Long, the bite and fighter, would become lieutenant governor in 1936 and then governor on three separate occasions. His last term ended in 1960, four months before he would die at the age of 55 after an alleged series of strokes and dementia. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Earl Long is a very interesting guy, but also very difficult to talk about because there is a lot of speculation towards his mental health that mm. I do not feel comfortable talking about. Mm. Huey's son, Russell, would enter politics and serve as U.S. Senator of Louisiana from 1948 to 1987. Um, the main thing that I think everyone would know him for is he's the reason that when you do taxes, you can deduct an amount of money based on how many dependents live in your home. Oh. Interesting. Yep, that was Russ. Huh. Uh, Russ died in 2003 at the age of 84. Wow. And most recently, there's Gerald Long, a third cousin to Huey, who finished up his 12-year tenure as state senator in Louisiana in 2020. Mm. And that kind of seems to be where the Long family dynasty ends. 
Huh. And especially for a family so big and so powerful, especially with like between Huey, Julius and Earl, you'd really kind of expect there to be a more of a legacy built from there. Like even even in Wisconsin, you still have a LaFollette in uh, <laughs> as secretary of the state doing a job that requires him to do literally nothing all year. Amazing. And it's like, yeah, it is kind of weird that a guy could have so much power, turn the state into his own personal kingdom. And then within two generations, there isn't a single long in government. But yeah, that's the story of, of uh, Huey Pierce Long Jr. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a trip. So just, feelings, thoughts. I mean, it boggles my mind how he just keeps going back to micromanage Louisiana. Like Louisiana is his, I wish I could quit you <laughs> moment. Except not, except he clearly doesn't wish he could quit Louisiana. It's yeah. just like, I start, like I'm so curious about the alternate timeline where it's like, what were you going to do? You were going to be president and then still fly back to Louisiana yeah. every other month to like. And it's probably easier to be a dictator of Louisiana if you're a dictator of the whole nation. Yeah, but he would just he would still be going back into the state legislature True. to, um, you know, quickly pass some ridiculous bills yeah. and deny New Orleans any amount of funding ever i mean it's truly wild that a dude who literally could have had anything who knew that there were assassination plots against him like some made up (laughs) some very true still kept going back to the state where it was the most dangerous for him to be and just for the sole purpose of crushing the like handful of enemies he still had left yeah just just sad and wild but also probably fortunate i don't know it's because so many of his ideas are so amazing, but yes, like if you're bringing people like Father Coughlin and Gerald L. K. Smith into your administration, things aren't going to go well for people. Things are going to get really, really bad for a subsect of people. Right. It, yeah, it's tempering the utopia of his shared wealth system and recognizing that it would have been like a shared wealth can amount to like the progression of the suburbs after World War II of just like, yeah, sure. If you're white, everyone yeah. suddenly has a house, like a gorgeous oh, yeah. house and 3.5 kids go yeah. nuts. Oh, but we're going to be redlining a whole lot of things. Yeah, I, I don't deny that things would have been amazing in America for white Anglo-Saxons. Like, right. they would have been fine. Everyone else would have. <laughs> They're always fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, better than usual. Fine, I guess. <laughs> I yeah. Yeah, it's it's really depressing, but it is kind of heartening to see so many of ideas used in a way he would probably get mad about nowadays. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean everyone gets this? What? Sure. Yeah. Who? No. You're... <laughs> People um, are what? Bye? No. <laughs> He also like I, I felt my um my classics education creeping back because he's truly like a heroic figure in that like he like what he's at his best is like early on and he's like the people need him and he's brought into the civilization and hmm. and he helps out the civilization but if he stays too long he destroys the civilization yeah. like that's what you see over and over again with um Achilles and Gilgamesh and all these stories is just like the minute the hero solves the problem mm-hmm. and then they stick around and they are the problem i feel like that's yeah. what that's Huey Ugh. But yeah, so if you want to learn more about Huey, I left out so much about the man. (laughs) So much. This is like from a 900-page book. I had to cut shit. There's a whole chapter about how he saved Louisiana State University from dying. Wow. He he wrote songs. He wrote his own campaign song. Um, He wrote a couple marching songs for Louisiana State for football games. Oh. Like... (sighs) 
it's it's wild the stuff that I had to cut. I had to keep the most outlandish shit. And <laughs> but yeah, it's I, I think it's a really interesting story about dogmatic personalities that, you know, when when I compare Trump and Long, the things are like they're very strong personalities. They very much hold a grudge. They also have moments where they're extremely funny, whether they mean to be or not. <laughs> they have like a doggedness that is difficult to understand and, you know, hate being told no in all regards and are always willing to go after the biggest man in the room because that's how you become the biggest man in the room and i think it's especially through the lens of huey long it becomes very easy to understand how if you're more conservative leaning how you could fall into that trap of loving someone like a desantis or trump or you sure. know, any any other dime store fascist so yeah yeah. except trump neither trump nor desantis is is giving me universal basic income no no off yeah, the you're, fat. you're right you're right <laughs> But they're giving they're giving conservatives the things they do want. Like it's you know the, the, whatever the opposite of universal fascism. Yeah, is. yeah. Like a uh, local extreme XCOM. Now, oh, <laughs> that's that's getting censored. <laughs> that's a good note to end on, right? Before I go to sleep. Hey! Hey, awesome, great. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Um, next week after this, we are going to be doing an episode of Gadfly Movie Night with a couple of amazing guests. Um, Una had to miss that one though, so she's yeah. she's past sick in that. But so yeah, so if you're sick of my voice, <laughs> tune in. Well, I guess then I'll see you. Or yeah, we'll see you next. Oh wait, no, it's this one. I'm forgetting what episodes where. We'll see y'all. <laughs> Have a fun time. Happy Thanksgiving, Christmas. Do 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 do. Going. Gadfly is a production of Added Serotonin. Our episodes are edited by Brianna Valentine of Rem Alternus Productions. Our theme song is Sophomore Makeout by Silent Partner, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GadflyPod. Ready to level up your cosplay game? Check out the Geek Forge on Etsy. With a variety of props to give your photos that extra spark, you'll find just what you need. Hold magical fire in the palm of your hand, or take a potion to restore your mana. With a large variety of colors, you can choose your own magical flavor for your cosplay. Bring drama to your photo shoots with these vibrant props and more, all available at the Geek Forge. Are you ready to level up your cosplay? 